Oh my gosh. So uh, these two chapters are so action-packed that we go at a, at a whopping pace and then these 10 academies coming, so we may not even finish anyhow. But we'll give it a try, okay? Um, if you haven't noticed already, First Samuel, the book, really skips around a lot in time. I don't know if you guys noticed. We had all that detail about Samuel the priest and his, his birth, or pre-birth, birth, and childhood, and that kind of stuff, and then suddenly he's a grown man, right? We miss everything in between. And similarly, we got all that detail about the choosing of Saul, um, the first king, and during that time, he seems to be a young man. There's no reference to wife or family, and it's him helping out dad and that kind of thing. And then suddenly in chapters 13 and 14, Saul is, I don't know, like approaching middle age because he has a grown son. So we like fast forward it again. Um, and we also learn by inference that all this time, um, and after all that fuss about Israel having a king, um, the first king of Israel has kind of been under the thumb of the Philistines. Uh, we will, I'm going to come back to that. So the Philistines all this time while Israel's getting a king have been in the background, sort of at the top of the power pyramid. So let us read um, the beginning of the chapter. Saul was blank years old when he began to reign, and he reigned blank and two years over Israel. Right? Everybody lost track, all that fast forwarding. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan, Saul's son, in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines, which was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Okay, so we don't know how old Saul is. We don't know how long he's been king, but long enough that he now has a grown son who's in the military, uh, serving under him. And we know that despite skirmishing with the Ammonites that we heard about last time from Christian and putting together this little standing army, um, the Philistines didn't seem to pay much attention to the Israelites until Jonathan won this skirmish. And it says skirmish, but literally what happened is they say Jonathan struck down the Philistine prefect. So some kind of assassination. Jonathan killed somebody important. It reminded me of the Moses story, right? Where you have the people being oppressed, and then Moses sees it and is like, ah, and kills the uh, Egyptian and gets into trouble, right? Okay, so that action, Jonathan killing the Philistine prefect, um, gets the Philistines' attention, and we come parachuting back into Saul's story, right? So first of all, who were the Philistines? Just a um, recap. The uh, historical sources there were, said there were kind of two major population groups in the area, right? And um, there were all the Semitic groups who came up through the desert, and they're the ones Saul has been arguing with up to now, right? The Ammonites and the Israelites and, and those kinds of folks. And then there were the Sea Peoples. So the Philistines, I think they may even have come from the Greek islands, right? And they settled on the coast. I think I have a picture. Yes, I have a picture with lots of teeny words you can't read. Um, <laughs> but on the edge there, by the Mediterranean, it's 
Philistia, right? The Philistines, and then the Israelites are inland. And um, so that's lovely. They could have coexisted, except Israel is in such a crucial location for trade routes, right? Um, you look, and if you want to go east, there's Israel. You know, south, you can kind of get around. Over north, there's Israel and all kinds of Semitic peoples and stuff. So, so there was conflict because of where Israel was located. And so uh, the Philistines had to keep Israel in check so they could keep their trade routes going. Okay, so we skipped over who knows how many years after Saul's coronation and his first military victory until Jonathan starting this Philistine war. And we have to assume that during all that time, even though Israel had its own king, you know, the Philistines just thought, oh, isn't that cute? They have a king, right? It didn't really matter. But now suddenly, by Jonathan doing this act, assassinating one of the Philistine administrators, right? Israel has awakened the dragon, and they started this war. And war with an enemy that is more numerous than they are and more powerful than they are. Um, the Philistine army, when they give the count, the Philistine army has thousands more soldiers, and they have chariots. Dang it, because they have entered the Iron Age, and Israel has not yet entered the Iron Age. And uh, moreover, in 13, verse 19, it says that the Philistines, kind of as a matter of policy, um, they said, you know, you can't have a blacksmith, um, Israel, because then you'll use it to make weapons. So they said, you can't even have a blacksmith. So when Israel goes to, um, goes to war, they have to do it basically with farm tools. Okay, now if you are a king, and it doesn't matter if you're a good king or a bad king or a so-so king, and Saul has, he's all of those at one time or another, this makes you nervous, right? Um, how, we don't know how Saul reacted when Jonathan killed the prefect. Um, because it didn't matter that Saul didn't kill the prefect, right? Because look, even the Bible says, the buck stops with the king. So even the Bible says in verse 4, when all Israel heard that Saul had struck down the Philistine prefect, right? He didn't. His son did. I don't know if you've ever, those of you who are parents, if you've ever had your kids get you into positions that had nothing to do with your actions or words, right? Um, they, they, they break somebody's window. Uh, they sign you up to be room mom. Um, they say, oh, I said I would bring four dozen cupcakes tomorrow. Like, what? Right? Um, well, Jonathan has gone and started a war, and now his dad has to deal with it. Okay, so they go out to battle, and they find that, sure enough, things look really, really bad. So let's keep reading. This is in verse 6. Verse 6. Verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in straits, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, or crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, the priest. Right? But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from the king. Right? So Saul said, oh, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and saluted him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, 
when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down upon me at Gilgal and I have not entreated the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Okay. Um, yeah, so basically, one look at the gathering Philistine army disperses the bulk of Saul's army. They're like, oh, no, no, no. Me and my rake, I am not taking them on. <laughs> so they run away, and they're hiding in all those places, and a few of them run all the way back to where Saul is kind of plotting. Well, if you've ever studied military history, I'm not saying any of you have, but if you've ever studied military history, you know that if your army is panicking, and you have no choice but to fight, you don't sit around waiting for the enemy to get more dug in and more reinforcements to come, right? You have got to act. You're, you're already at a disadvantage, and the longer you wait, the worse it gets. Um, so you have to surprise them. But Saul can't do this, right? He can't do military actions 101 before his army heads into battle because he wants to offer the sacrifice, because the Israelites always offer the sacrifice to God before they go out into battle. And he can't offer the sacrifice because Samuel said back in chapter 10, you gotta wait for me. I'm the priest, I offer the sacrifice, right? That's my job, that's not your job, so you have to wait for me. You know, have you ever been in Saul's position where you were waiting on God, right? You wanted to be good, you wanted to obey, you wanted to do what God wanted you to do, but what was he waiting for, right? You're praying, everything's going to pieces, Everything is just going down the toilet, and God hasn't said anything, God hasn't done anything that you can see, right? And so what do you do? You panic, right? You've got to do it yourself. He's not paying attention. Somebody's got to deal with this situation, right? So you do it yourself. We, I don't know, maybe only I, have ever been in that situation, right? Where you just think, okay, fine, fine. You're not, you're not paying attention, I'll take care of it. Um, you know, God, you don't seem to sense the urgency here. You don't seem to care about what I care about. So I'm going to take matters in my own hands. I'm going to do what I have to do to bring about the outcome I desire. We are not alone when we find ourselves in that situation, right? Saul was there. So the pressure builds. Saul's prayers and his agony and his worrying go unanswered. And so he takes matters in his own hands. He performs the sacrifice because lives are at stake, people, right? And then sure enough, just as he finishes, here comes Samuel, okay? I am not pleased with him. This time reading through this book, I am less and less pleased with Samuel, right? Does he apologize for his dilly-dallying? You know, my mule broke down, I'm sorry. You know, does he offer an excuse, however lame, for holding up the fate of his people, right? No. He goes straight into blame and punishment. Too bad for you, Saul. You can't obey God's commands. And here God was, planning on establishing your dynasty for all time. But, oh well, guess he'll have to pick someone after his own heart who's more obedient. 
gotta go, right? And off he goes. And so, as a fellow impatient sinner, I feel for Saul. I feel for him. You know, I wish Saul had gotten off a line or two shouting at Samuel as he trots off, right? You know, well, I may not do everything right, and my dynasty may not be forever, but at least my son Jonathan came out better than your sons, Joel and Abijah, who are totally corrupt, we've heard, right? And who take bribes, and they aren't any better than Eli's sons, who you were supposed to replace, right? I wish Saul, it would make me feel better. If Saul at least got his two cents in, like, you know what, okay, Mr. Perfect, right? Um, God holds his leaders to high, high standards, right? To lead God's people, you have to submit to God. And Saul's act, the problem with it, was that it was finally one of mistrust. Lord, I do not trust you. I do not believe you love us and have our best interests at heart. I believe that if I don't look out for number one, no one else will. When we disobey God because we're sick of waiting, when we take matters into our own hands, we do so because we do not believe that God loves us. Right? We do not believe that he has our best interests at heart. And in our lack of trust and our fear, we decide we better do it our own way and in our own timing. This is the problem, right? This is the problem we act out of fear. So I made a little table, right? A little, what's your attitude table? So look at poor Saul, right? What does Saul see? He says, we have, I have 600 scared soldiers, right? Under rocks and in caves and everywhere against thousands who have iron weapons and chariots, right? I think God is not watching out for us, right? Because things aren't going to my eyes how I want them to go, right? If God were for us, wouldn't I have the bigger army? Wouldn't we have the better weapons? Wouldn't we be kind of dominant and they're the ones shaking in their boots? Right? And so Saul decides, okay, when you're between a rock and a hard place, you've got to do what you've got to do. And that's look out for number one. This is what Saul decides, right? This is Saul's attitude. We are afraid. God doesn't care. You've got to do for yourself because God will not do for you. Okay, so the damage is done. Saul has offered the sacrifice, and the prep for the battle goes on. The Philistines are camped on one side, and the Israelites on the other. Now here comes Jonathan, right? Jonathan, we find, is kind of an impulsive guy. And he decides he's already slaughtered the Philistine prefect and got Israel into this mess. Now he decides, well, we can't just sit here. Let's go get him, right? He's going to provoke a battle. So let's read on. This is... Uh, Chapter 14 now. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who wore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison, garrison on yonder side, because he spoke in RSV. <laughs> <laughs> Let's skip to verse 4. In the pass by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one crag was Bozes, and the name of the other, Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Eba. And Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. 
For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearers said to him, Do all that your mind inclines you to. Behold, I'm with you. As is your mind, so is mine. Then said Jonathan, Behold, we will cross over to the men and will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still in our place and we won't go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we'll go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. Okay. I have a slide. So you probably can't see this either, but this is the area um, on the right-hand side is Midmash, that little town there. Uh, Bozes and Senna are the ones marked at the bottom. See the big ravine that cuts through? That, that's what's separating these two armies, and Ziba's over there, right? So Jonathan's on one side of that big ravine, and the Philistines are on the other side of that big ravine. Okay. And then, here's Bozes and Senna, right? You can see how craggy it is, and you can see how, basically, if you're on one side of it, there are plenty of places to hide, and you can look at each other, and they can't really see you, right? But once you climb down from there, and you're on the ground in between, then you are very exposed, right? And so, um, nobody expects anybody to lead an attack from there, because that'd be dumb. You'd climb down, everybody would just shoot you while you're standing there in the ravine, and then that would be the end. So no one expected, so he has the element of surprise on his side. Okay, so Jonathan is eager to see what God will do and how God can use him. So he does the unexpected, right? He challenges the sentries and climbs the cliffs. Nobody climbs the cliffs. You've seen the movies, right? Remember what happens if you're the first guy to scale up the wall? They like shoot you with an arrow and then they push your ladder off the wall and you're dead, right? So you always want to have at least 10 people like going up ahead of you, right? Because the first guy always gets killed. Um, yeah, he's a red shirt, right? The first guy's always the red shirt, like, I'll go first. Okay. Um, but Jonathan, but Jonathan acts and then he seeks confirmation from God. He says, if the sentries say the unexpected, come up to us, right? Then I'll know that God is in this action, and if not, then I guess we're toast, right? Okay, and because these actions are so unexpected, it throws the Philistines in turmoil. So let's look at Jonathan's attitude, right? So Dad goes, whoa, their army is bigger, right? And Jonathan's, Jonathan's attitude is, nothing prevents the Lord from winning a victory by many or by few, right? Jonathan's attitude is completely the opposite. Like, oh, the numbers don't actually matter, right? Because God is gonna, God is gonna do what God is going to do, which is the second thing I have, right? God will do what God will do as he deems best, right? And that may not mean we win this battle, but God is gonna do what God is gonna do. And he says, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Let's see. Let's see if this is God's will. Let's give it a try, right? And then the last thing he does is he steps out in faith. And then he looks for God's direction. He says, let's just climb down and then see if God confirms what we did or if we made a very foolish decision. <laughs> He's a very impulsive guy, but his attitude is based on, you know, what does God want to do in this situation? I know what it looks like from a human perspective, but what does it look like from God's perspective? Let's see if we can find out, right? A very different attitude from his father's. Um, okay, so his actions, so the Philistines in turmoil, and then... Uh, 
that there's lots of action in chapter 14, and we do not have time to dwell on each action. Um, but So we're going to go pretty fast. We're going to look more at the pattern of Saul's choices after that and what we can learn from them or not learn from them. Right? Okay, so in verses 16 to 23, Saul sees and he hears the Philistines are suddenly panicking, right? Like, oh, 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 you know, oh, here, well, we better do something, right? So he wants to capitalize on the situation. So he says, oh, bring the ark, bring the ark. We'll consult the Lord and see if we should go into battle, right? But then he sees, he sees the battle going and he's like, oh, 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 I don't want to blow this moment. So he tells the priest, withdraw your hand, right? Never mind consulting the Lord. Just put down the ark. We got to go. Um, so, so he abandons that plan, right? Uh, we don't have time to consult the Lord anymore. Let's just let's go kick some Philistine behinds, right? Okay. But Saul still wants God to look favorably on his efforts, despite the like, bring the ark, no, put the ark down, bring it, no. Right? So he, he makes this rash vow on behalf of his troops. He says, nobody is to eat anything until nightfall. Presumably, I mean, his, his, um, his motivation is, well, yes, that way God gets all the credit, right? It's not us because we all feel sort of weak and grouchy and hangry and, and stuff. But if we actually win now, God gets the credit because we didn't eat anything. It wasn't that we had extra good rations, right? Um, but the thing, it kind of backfires on him because Jonathan, of course, says, do, 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 do. Jonathan didn't know about the vow dad made, and so he finds a honeycomb, he's like, ah, and his eyes light up because, I don't know, one time um, we took the college kids, uh, the leadership team, camping in Yosemite, and we went on this horrible mountain hike, and... <laughs> Some people love this kind of stuff. I hate this kind of stuff. So I was hugging, 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 feeling sorry for myself, wishing it would be over. And I remember uh, one of Scott's interns, at one point, he gave me a Jolly Rancher candy. And boy, did that bit of sugar make the difference, right? Suddenly my backpack didn't felt all light, and I had energy, and I could go the rest of the way up the mountain. And So sugar, when you need it, is great stuff, right? So Jonathan gets this bit of sugar, and his eyes light up, and the people are like, oh, oh, your dad said we weren't supposed to have anything, even though that looks really good and refreshing. And um, Jonathan, he thinks the vow is misguided, and he's probably also upset that he broke it, right? And he, he's surprised into openly criticizing his dad. Oh, my father has stirred up trouble. Um, it's interesting, the verb stirred up, the one translated stirred up, is used another time, back in Judges 11.35, if you remember the story of Jephthah and his daughter, right? And Jephthah goes out to battle, and he's like, oh, yay, I won, and Lord, for winning, I'm going to sacrifice the first person who comes to greet me. I don't know why, right? Why would you want to sacrifice the first person? And he's like, yay. And he's like, ah. So, and, but they use the same verb stirred up, right? Stirred up. In Jephthah's story and in here, when the vow is rash, when it's ill-considered. Okay. So then, okay, so Saul, take the ark, put down the ark, and nobody touch any food, right? And now, what happens? Okay, so the men, they, they, they do the battle, and then they fall upon some meat, right? And they go bananas, right? They're just like, ah, hungry, ha, eating this meat, and they're 
they're not pouring the blood out on the ground like they're supposed to do by their dietary laws, right? They're not eating the food properly. And so it leads to bigger mess, right? Now the men, because they're so starved and exhausted, are breaking dietary laws. So again, Saul panics, right? He, I was trying to make God happy with us, right? Stop that. So he, he brings a rock and he started slaughtering all the animals and doing it properly, right? Which was, again, another priest's job. So, okay, Saul panics again. And then it, it's just like snowballs from there. And then he's like, okay, you know what? We're gonna build an altar to commemorate the victory, but also to like, hopefully God will look over at the altar and not over at just all the big mess. We've had a lot of messes today. So we're gonna build an altar. They build an altar. Now God will be happy with us in verse 35. Okay, and then he's like, okay, now I want to pursue the Philistines more, but I want to make sure God wants me to pursue the Philistines more, right? Because that's what I should do. So he's like, come here, come here with the lots again, with the Urim and Thummim, right? Let's consult God. And somehow God does not indicate. I don't know how God doesn't indicate when like the Urim and the Thummim were like a yes, no, right? And so I don't know how you indicate, like, did they both get wedged in crevices or something each time? And, but somehow they did not indicate. So he said, son, this is verse 37, something's wrong. Why is it not working? Why is God not telling me what to do? I tried to cross all my T's and dot all my I's, and God is not cooperating. So he said, okay, now cast those things and figure out why God is not cooperating. All right, we'll back up a step. Okay, so, and then it, it separates them, right? It separates Saul and Jonathan and the army, and then it separates Jonathan from his father Saul. Uh-oh, right? Because jo Saul has already said, even if it's my son Jonathan, you know, that's it. We want to be right with God. So we find out, everybody finds out now, that Jonathan broke the no eating bell. It was unintentional, but if you want to serve a black and white God who operates according to predictable rules, which is what Saul would like, right? You do this, and God blesses you. You avoid that, and you know God is happy, right? Um, Saul is looking this entire time when he's trying to like, I want God on my side. So let me see. I'm going to consult the Lord, and then I'm going to make a vow, and I'm going to build an altar, and I'm going to do all this stuff because I want to keep God happy. Right? I want God to operate predictably. Okay, but if you want a God like that, then you get yourself in situations where suddenly, oh, I made a vow, I want to keep the vow, because that's how you keep a predictable God happy, but that means I have to kill my son. Um, and again, this, this story is, is uh, alluding back to the story of Jephthah's daughter. Same thing, right? You, you did something stupid by making that vow, right? But you think, oh, you're thinking in such black and white terms that you feel like you have to go through with it. You stirred up trouble. And hence what Jesus says later when he comes along, just like stop with the vows, okay? You don't even know what you're swearing. You don't know what you're invoking. You don't know the consequences. Just stop. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no and just knock it off with the vows because you guys are just messing with fire. Just stop, right? Okay, so Saul has spent the whole day trying to check all the religious boxes to get God's approval, to get God to do what Saul wants him to do. And his ultimate motives are good ones, right? He wants victory for the people. He wants them to be freed from their oppressors. 
And when we want to try to get God to do what we want him to do, we might have praiseworthy motives as well, right? We might have good reasons, like, God, I want you to heal this person. And that's a good prayer, right? We want them to be well. Um, but God, Saul finds, that God is not a robot to be programmed. You don't do, 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 put in these commands and then out comes the result you want. Lord, if I do X, Y, and Z for you, then you do this for me, right? Or, Lord, I did this, that, and the other for you, so that means you have to do this. Otherwise, you're not holding up your end of the bargain. Right? So Saul says, okay, I made that vow, so I'm willing to go through. I will sacrifice Jonathan according to the letter of the law because that's part of my X, Y, and Z, and I want you to bless me. So he says, thus and more may God do. You shall be put to death, Jonathan. So what is Jonathan's response to this quagmire that his father has gotten them into? Now they're even, right? Jonathan got dad into a war. Dad got Jonathan into a death sentence. Um, he feels both regret for his father's black and white misunderstanding of God, but he is willing to submit. Okay? So we see a final difference between Saul's approach to God in the chapter and Jonathan's. Right? Saul, Saul thinks God needs to be controlled and appeased by religion. He needs to be manipulated into doing what an individual wants. You, you do what you have to do to cover your bases. Jonathan's attitude is like, God, you're God, and I'm not. And if that means I die today, then I die today, right? God, you are sovereign. Completely different attitude. Okay, okay. So if I just talk at one and a half times speed, we can get through it all. Okay. So what can we learn from Saul's mistakes? Obviously, all these stories are recorded. We're supposed to learn something, right? When we are between a rock and a hard place, God can still work, and he does, right? Sadly, in his time and in his way, and not necessarily with any reference to our recommendations and our maneuverings. I don't know if you've ever been a bargainer with God. I think everybody's tried it once or twice, right? Lord, if I do this, that, and the other, then you'll do this, right? Um, I told you about my first Bible study teacher in college who, who told God, God, if you get me into Cal, I'll lead a Bible study, and I'll go to church every Sunday. So, and there he was, right? He, at least he was following through on his rash vow. So, um, okay, so, yes, it is okay for God to work in his way and on his time, even if it isn't what we would have chosen, right? And look at the messes that Saul creates, mess after mess after mess, trying to get God to stick to his, to Saul's plan, right? He weakens the soldiers when they most need strength. He almost has his son killed. And instead of reinforcing his subjects' respect, this is a great military victory. They should be like, yay, Saul. It ends on this horrible note. But like, ah! Instead, there's this kind of mutiny, right? No, don't kill Jonathan. Don't kill him. So it ends in this horrible moment of kind of, Saul, we don't respect you, and we don't, we don't respect your authority because we think you make terrible choices. So, Everything Saul tried to do backfired for him that day. We, instead of reinforcing him as king, it undermined him as king. Um, and, and then as, as a kind of little foreshadowing note, that lot is cast. Remember when the lot is cast and it separates Jonathan and Saul from the rest of the army? In 1 Samuel chapter 31, Jonathan and Saul will die in battle on the same day together. Right? The lot is cast. Um, okay. So 
that's kind of where we are on a sad little depressing note. So we're gonna um, we're gonna pray right now and perk our spirits up before the kids come. Father in heaven, I know that every woman in this room probably has a situation in her life where she has been praying and asking and waiting, Lord. And Father, we do want to put things in your hands. We do. Forgive us when we do things our own way, out of panic, or out of thinking you don't love us. It's so easy, Father, when you don't operate on our timeline to think you don't love us. And uh, forgive us for our unbelief in that, Lord. We just pray. Father, I just want to take a second, and maybe we can all give you that thing in our lives we have been asking and waiting for, Lord, and we don't trust you with. We can give it to you one more time, Father. Please help us. Give us a Jonathan attitude, Lord, that you, you can do what you plan on doing, Lord, um, and that it will finally be for our good. Help us to trust you in that, Father, even if it means things not turning out exactly how we would like them and on our timing, Lord. Help us to submit as Jonathan submitted to you, Lord, and say, Father, what you want for us, help us to trust that you love us and that what you want for us is the best, ultimately. Um, we pray these things in Jesus' name.